Okay, let's listen to the Christmas story from Luke, and I'll explain some items of interest along the way. The first thing we see in Luke chapter 2 is the political scene. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, Luke mentions in Acts chapter 5 about a census we know historically took place in around A.D. 6. The Roman emperors would periodically send out censuses in order to enlist for military and to levy taxes and this sort of thing. This kind of census was taken roughly every 14 years, even though a local governor or some sort of local uh, ruler could take a census at other times. And the census could take several years to accomplish. So we know that there was a earlier census a couple years before Christ was born. Okay, Luke mentions in Acts chapter 5 a census that we know took place around A.D. 6 or 7. Luke references that one. But we're talking a census some years earlier in around B.C. Uh, 8, 6, 7, 8 B.C. We know that a census took place then. Uh, and, uh, well, then some have argued, well, the census was in 8 B.C. Jesus couldn't have been born until uh, as uh, 6 B.C. was the earliest he could be born. But the thing is, if a census goes out from Rome, that could easily take it two years to get to the land of Israel, easily. In fact, we know historically of one census that was given in another country, and it took 40 years to accomplish it. So this isn't a problem uh, for Luke's chronology. Luke knows what he's talking about. So a census in Israel around 5 BC could have begun in Rome about 7 or 8 BC and just have taken that long to reach the land of Israel. No problem there. What about this guy Quirinius or Cyrenius, though? He was not governor until 6 AD, right? Well, Varus was technically the governor of Syria, but Augustus had entrusted Quirinius with the authority. Further, there is some evidence that Quirinius was governor on two different occasions. That is a possibility. Uh, in fact, I dare say a probability since Luke mentions that. Look, Luke has been studied by scholars uh, one of the uh, prime examples I could give you of microscopic research, if you will, putting Luke under a microscope, all the cities, towns, villages, nautical uh, implements, the islands, manners and customs, the titles of the governors of local places, all the things Luke mentions throughout the book of Acts has been shown to be 100% accurate among historians and Bible scholars who have studied him since. It's always the case. The most recent example I can give you, uh, the most recent comprehensive example, is Colin Hemer's book titled The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. And it's just an unbelievable amount of research the guy has amassed uh, to demonstrate from uh, the time period how that Luke uh, just mastered everything he mentioned, all the dates, all the manners and customs, all the titles of people, titles of places, the lands at that particular time, and his, he is shown to have impeccable history. So I'm not going to question him here on this one uh, either. Actually, the Greek language there, when Quirinius was first uh, governor, the first census taken while he was governor, that is possible. Some scholars have said that means the first one as opposed to the second one uh, mentioned uh, later. Some scholars like uh, Daryl Bach and 
uh, Edwards in the Pillar New Testament commentary series, uh, newer scholars will say, well, that's not, you know, we're not relying on the possibility of the Greek language, uh, but others will say, hey, we're relying on the historical accuracy of Luke. He is shown to be accurate. Again, Colin Hemer's book, uh, Norm Geisler, Thomas Howe, and their uh, book of Bible difficulties uh, shows that the details, correct details for Luke in the book of Acts, 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. And again, others' research demonstrates that Luke is trustworthy as a historian, but also as an evangelical. I'm here to share with you that, hey, he's also inspired by God to give these accurate details. And as Norman Geisler has said, God cannot err. That means God cannot make a mistake. The Bible is the word of God, and therefore the Bible cannot err. If we think that we found an error in the Bible, men and women, we are the ones who are mistaken, or we just have incomplete information, okay? Luke mentions a, a census by Quirinius, and this would have taken a place before 6 BC, because that's the earliest that Jesus was uh, born, okay? Okay, so this is the political scene, and in fact, speaking of Luke's historical accuracy, he puts us right, the birth of Jesus right, smack in the middle of uh, the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, censuses that were sent out, Every 14 years, uh, uh, sometimes, uh, he mentions this guy, Quirinius, who was governor of Syria, uh, that Joseph and the peoples of the land are going to go to their home city to register for the census. So, again, everything lines up with history. That's the political scene. Next, we see the family's home, the family's home, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of uh, David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, he's going to um, Judea. He went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea. He went up. Okay, there's a geographical slash geological issue that Luke is accurate with. Nazareth is in the north central part of Israel, and he's going uh, many miles due south, pretty much due south. But Luke says he goes up. He uses the preposition up, both in Greek and English. What's the deal with that? Well, that is because um, he is going up in elevation. And those guys that lived in that area in that day and time, those men and women, when they walk and they're wake, walking up grade, they feel the weight of that. They know that they're going up. Uh, when you go up to Jerusalem, when you see that in the Gospels, every time, it doesn't matter which direction you come from, even still today, when your tour bus goes up to Jerusalem, you're going uphill. It sits up on top of some hills. So, yes, they're going up. Even though they're going due south, they're going up in elevation. So, again, Luke is accurate. They're going to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David. Okay, they're going to the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, that's pretty interesting because uh, Jesus later would be teaching in John 6 that he is the bread of life. The bread of life is born there in the breadbasket of Israel uh, at that uh, time. And again, uh, back to this issue of Judea, it's in the south. Uh, this is the region mentioned by the prophet Micah. If 
few hundred years before Micah 5, 2. So prophecy is being fulfilled. It's being played out in real time. God is a God of providence, men and women. And uh, to quote R.C. Sproul from The Invisible Hand, uh, that book on the providence of God, uh, he actually quotes the Westminster Confession of Faith that reads this this way, and I'm quoting, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy, end quote. That's exactly right. Prophecy is being played out here in real time in history. Okay. Uh, Joseph was of the house and family of David. Listen, Joseph was a descendant of David through Solomon's line, and Mary was a descendant through David's son, Nathan. So Luke is probably giving Mary's Mary's lineage um, and leaving out her name in, perhaps in deference to Jewish custom, perhaps. And that's a comment from uh, MacArthur's commentary on Luke. By the way, let me go back and mention uh, on this historical accuracy of Luke some ways to piece together some information uh, going on here. Some resources are Daryl Bach's commentary on Luke. Uh, Edwards' commentary on the Gospel of Luke in the Pillar New Testament commentary published by Erdman's. Uh, John MacArthur's commentary on Luke gives some excellent comments on on the whole uh, scenario. Uh, Richard Niswanger, it's an out-of-print book, I think now. It's called New Testament History. Uh, Josephus's The Antiquity of the Jews. And uh, there are others, but those are a few to get you started. Colin Hemer's The Book of Acts and the Setting of Hellenistic History, as I said. Okay. All right. So Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. Okay. He was engaged. Matthew says they were betrothed. This is an old Bible word. This was in that culture, a legal and binding contract in that culture. And to break it off, to break off this betrothal, we call an engagement similar to our engagement, engagement, but uh, actually it would require a divorce certificate if you broke it off. And Joseph didn't want that publicity. He loved Mary. He wanted to protect her. You know, this was the virgin birth, the miraculous conception. And so um, an and angel had delivered the message to uh, uh, Joseph. So there's this level of trust in the message. Uh that he had to um, had to practice there as well. Okay, and then there's the struggle and the birth. While they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, a few comments here. Number one, again, prophecy is fulfilled. Micah 5.2 is being fulfilled. Isaiah 7.14 is being fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 9, a couple of issues there are being fulfilled. Specifically, Galatians 4.4, generally speaking, is being fulfilled in the fullness of the time. And several other Old Testament prophecies are generally fulfilled. Another issue is the parents took uh, good care of the baby. They made sure he was warm at a safe place uh, to stay. They were trusting in God uh, for things. That's a good, that's good parenting as well, by the way. 
in addition to the physical things we can and should do as parents. Another comment here, the creator and king of the universe was laid in a feeding trough. What humility, right? Philippians 2 talks about that humility. Another issue, there was no room in the inn. Uh, What a struggle that must have been for Joseph, the dad, right? Not being able to find room in his own hometown. But in a sense, that's a precursor to what would happen to Jesus later as he learned about this growing up as a boy. This this would steal him against that sort of hurt, emotionally speaking, if you will, later on when his own hometown of Nazareth, they they will not have him, will not listen to him, uh, would not receive him. But scriptures say in John 1, verse 12, whoever does receive the Lord Jesus Christ to that person, he gives the right to become children of God. And that's a great invitation and a great blessing, God's saving mercy and grace available to you and to me. Uh, Number four, part of my uh, outline here, the shepherds, the angels, and the sheep. Verse 8 In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Shepherds were given an announcement about the birth of the great shepherd. Did you hear that? The great shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But over in the New Testament, The New Testament version of that is John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. Hebrews 13, 20, he's the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5, 4, he's the chief shepherd. He was also the Lamb of God, John 1, 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19, Revelation 22, 3. You can look those up. The shepherd sheep analogy is there really from the beginning. It is there from the beginning. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, and through the rest of his ministry throughout eternity, he's the shepherd of his people. He's also the Savior, verse 11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there appeared with the angel to the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. Later on, uh, we will read in the book of Acts 13, verse 23, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Paul in Philippians 3.24, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Gives the Give the winds a mighty voice, the old hymn says. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus saves, uh, my friends, from the tyranny of sin and the judgment of sin, the consequences of which come now in life And the final judgment, which will come later, Jesus can deliver you from that. He can bring peace into your heart, hope into your mind, love into your life and world, and change your life. Then there's finding Jesus, verse 16. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. 
When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were wondered at the things, things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. After they found Jesus, they told others. The wise men found him and went another way. That's how it is. When we find Jesus, we want to tell others, and we go another way. That is, we we live another way. They went another way physically, literally, uh, in their direction to go back east to their homeland. When we come to Jesus and find Jesus nowadays, we we live another way as well. What about you this Christmas holiday? Then there's the holy man, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed him and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. We don't know a lot about this man men and women, but uh, we uh, he was probably elderly. He was, according to the text, a righteous and devout man. He was with others at the time looking for a personal Savior and a national deliverer promised in the covenants, including the new covenant, which promised a clean heart. The Holy Spirit was promised in the new covenant, a clean heart and the Holy Spirit. These were brought about by the shed blood death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The clean heart and Holy Spirit were promised in the new covenant mentioned in the Jewish prophet Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following, and in the Jewish prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, verse 27. Okay, so the consolation of Israel would be a word picture of this Savior who is going to deliver. And then when you come to the Gospels, Matthew uh, 26 and Luke 22 specifically, Jesus says at that last uh Passover meal with his disciples. This is my blood of the new covenant, right? He would be inaugurating the new covenant for all who believe in him. They get a clean heart. They get the Holy Spirit in their lives. They become part of the family of God. Now, I don't know where I got my outline for this message. I probably borrowed it from someone or adapted it at least, but I do know where I'm getting the following comments. I'm reading from Will Varner's book anticipating the messiah i'm sorry anticipating the advent is the title of it looking for the messiah in all the right places anticipating the advent by will varner and i'm reading now luke describes for us another moving scene involving two more senior saints simeon is described as a pious priest who is looking for the messiah's israel the lord had even assured him that he would not die before he had seen with his own eyes the lord's promised servant The drama that played out very quietly between this couple, the couple mentioned uh, uh, Mary and Joseph, this young couple, very young, actually, probably teenagers. And this old man, Simeon, and the 40-day-old boy, although probably not noticed by many present, was fraught with pathos and great feeling, Varner says. Think of the aged Simeon coming every day to the temple knowing that the Lord had promised that he would live to see the Messiah. As he aged and the inevitable end was drawing near, he could be excused if he wondered if that day would ever arrive. 
As he entered the crowded court, I can imagine the Lord tapping him on the shoulder and telling him, Simeon, there he is. His glance catches the eyes of the couple, so they approach and hand the infant Jesus into his arms. The ceremony of the coins and the redemption was not the most important thing at this point. As he looked up to heaven and with thanksgiving in his heart and trembling in his hands, he lifted up the baby toward heaven. Let us now hear his own words. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What a way to go, Varner says. I don't know if these were his last words, but they certainly would have been the greatest words of his long life. The last words about a revelation for the Gentiles are a clear reference to some wonderful promises in Isaiah, such as Isaiah 9, 2, 42, verse 6, and 49, verse 6. The glory of Israel could only mean one thing. This little one was the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah. Barner says, I have often wondered what the young mother must have wondered as this old man said such things about her little one. Maybe she wondered, well, Lord, you told me that he would be the long-awaited promised one for my people Israel, but did I just hear that he will bring light also to the Gentiles? There's more to this than I ever imagined. I conclude this because of what the next verse says about their reaction. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were said about him. Barner goes on, if this encounter ended there, it would have been enough. But when old Simeon handed the child back to his parents, he delivered a final word that must have tempered their wonder with some real pain. Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Oh, why does his joyful words have to end on that painful note? What does it mean that a sword will someday cut into her soul? It would be over three decades before she would know exactly what they meant. As she stood before a Roman cross looking at the broken body of her son, she would experience the pain in her soul. That would be the counterpoint of the joy that must have flooded her soul on this day in the temple. Before the Messiah's glory must come suffering, so graphically described in such passages as Isaiah 53 and later described by Peter in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and following. But as these words began to sink in, another senior saint approached. It was a woman who bore the name of an Old Testament saint who must have also cherished the few days she had with her young son of promise before she returned him to the tabernacle temp temple of her day. That's for Samuel one talking about uh, Hannah. Like her Old Testament counterpart, her Hebrew name was Hannah, but Luke calls her by the shorter equivalent, Anna. Let his words graphically describe the touching encounter. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, Phanuel of that tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to him of all, to all those who were looking for redemption of Jerusalem. So Varner ends, I'll end with uh, Varner's words here. Two senior saints are seen here finishing their course by beholding the one who would eventually bring glory and redemption to their people. It is a beautiful irony that the little child who was redeemed physically from the hands of the old priest Simeon should be announced by the old Anna as the one who would spiritually redeem Jerusalem from her heavy burdens. Yes, in a very real way, we say that Christmas is for kids. It is such a delight to see them receiving and sharing presents on Christmas morning. 
It is also a joy to watch their wonder at hearing the old story of Jesus' birth and imagining and imagine that they could be one of those shepherds near the manger. But in this story, which is also an important part of Luke's Advent account, two senior saints find the greatest gift of their long lives. Yes, this day was surely a Christmas for old people. End quote. I like that. And my final point, point then here is the Christmas child. For my eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon said, which you have prepared, uh, verse 30 and 31, in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Your salvation, he says. Listen, Jesus's very name, the very name Jesus, the Hebrew Yeshua, means God is salvation. Jesus came to save us from sins. That is what Christmas is about. That's what Christmas is about. He's a light of revelation. He explains who God is. He is the light of the world. And in Jesus, we gain the understanding of who God is. We're offered his wisdom, redemption, and moral and spiritual light. And I hope you know his salvation today. Jesus saves. That's the wonderful message of Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you from the Bible professor. May the Lord bless you.